This is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Jabot. This week, the Prime Minister's promise to renew the military covenant and boost support for the forces. They are genuinely the best of British, and we owe them support not just for them, but also for their families. Also, are the Russians really sending spies into the heart of Westminster? I have no reason to believe she did anything but act honourably. She is determined to appeal. MPs are debating the controversial plan to raise university tuition fees in England. Outside Parliament, thousands of students are protesting. Dozens of Lib Dem MPs could abstain or vote against the coalition government's proposal. BAE Systems is cutting almost 1,400 jobs in the UK. The defence giant's move follows the decision to scrap Nimrod and the Harrier fleet in the government's defence review. Petrol supplies are running out in some parts of Scotland as some zero conditions continue. Soldiers have been brought in to clear snow in Edinburgh after the city council asked the military for help. The UN is telling authorities in Afghanistan to do more to protect women in the country from violence. A report says honour killings and child marriage remain serious problems despite a new law designed to curb violence against women. And the former England footballer Paul Gascoigne has been given a suspended eight-week prison sentence for drink driving. He was more than four times over the legal limit. Gascoigne has also been banned from driving for three years. And that's the latest. I'm Suzanne Chislett. covenant has for years been a phrase used without a clear definition of exactly what it means both for the forces and the ministers responsible for it. But that could change after the publication of this week's Armed Forces Bill. It sets up an annual report to Parliament spelling out the action taken to help forces families on issues like healthcare, housing and education. Paul Osborne reports. For hundreds of years, it's been accepted that a country owes a special debt to its armed forces. But it was only in 2000 that the military covenant was first mentioned in a Ministry of Defence paper. British soldiers must always be able to expect fair treatment to be valued and respected as individuals, an unbreakable common bond of identity, loyalty and responsibility. In essence, it says that in return for the dangers they face, Britain promises to care for its forces and their families, both during and after their service. It's a vital commitment, according to Brigadier Robin Bacon from ABF, the soldiers' charity. To know that the family's being looked after means you can then concentrate on your job. It's very distracting when you're out in operational theatre to know that your family are having difficulties with the children at school, with health problems and so on. And if you know that everything's OK at home, you can get on with your job in hand. In July, David Cameron promised to rebuild the military covenant and asked military historian Professor Hugh Strawn to think about how best to do that. His report highlights specific problems facing military families. For instance, they move so frequently, they often struggle to get a mortgage. Brigadier Robin Bacon again. If you have a BFBO, a British Forces Post Office address, you find that that impacts adversity on your credit rating because people don't recognise where you live. You, you need a postcode, not a, a British Forces post office code. 
uh, in order to be able to get that credit rating you know, for a mortgage. Ministers have summoned the banks to talks on helping forces personnel to get home loans and promised a pupil premium, extra funding for children with parents in the military. Kim Richardson is chair of the Naval Families Federation. The pupil premium will allow schools to do that extra bit of pastoral care for our children, which is, is really important, particularly for those who have um, dads and mums uh, who are deployed. There's also a promise to deliver an annual report to Parliament, accounting for progress on issues like housing and health care. Another idea is a community covenant, local projects celebrating and supporting the forces in the areas where they're based. The Prime Minister says it's a recognition of the extraordinary contribution that service personnel make to British life. I was again struck on my visit to Afghanistan just how hard these people are working, how courageous and professional and brave they are. They are genuinely the best of British and we owe them support not just for them but also for their families. The Prime Minister says the government must go the extra mile to help them. But there's little new money on offer here. The plans rely on existing institutions, from banks to veterans' charities, going that extra mile for the forces. Paul Osborne reporting. Well, the author of that report on the military covenant, Professor Hugh Strawn, is on the line now, and Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is in the studio. Uh, hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Strawn, how, what is your idea exactly of the community covenant, and how would it work? Well, the... the essentially it rests on the idea that it's up to the local community and indeed the, the armed forces within that community to define the relationship in terms which make most sense for them. So it might well vary according to where you are in the United Kingdom and according to the balance of forces that there is in the United Kingdom. Um, but the key driver here is that at national level, at central level, Quite a lot is now in place, which ensures cooperation between government departments. Um, in the life of the last government, um, the Service Personnel Command paper uh, set about getting different government departments speaking to the Ministry of Defence, the Ministry of Defence speaking to different government departments to make sure that those um, areas of difficulty like health, uh, medical care for families, education, um, and so on and so forth, uh, were addressed. But the delivery of that is going to be at the local level, is going to be within the community. And that's really the point uh, of the idea of the community covenant, is to take this down so that rather than just be cooperation across Whitehall, we can actually talk about cooperation, not only between government departments, but also cooperation, crucially, between people who actually live in a particular community, whether they're civil or military. Christopher Lee, should the military covenant be enshrined in law? No, of course it shouldn't. Why I mean, not? I think the whole idea of a covenant is absolute, it's rather sad, actually. It, it assumes that there is no relationship, for example, between the people of the country and the military. Of course there is. Wooden Bassett, sadly, sort of shows that. The idea that you've taken ten years to get as far as Professor uh, Strawn has, which is, which is brilliant. I mean, what he's been saying in his report is, is spot on. It just shows how the military has been let down, not by the people of the United Kingdom, they've been let down by the MOD, senior officers... Uh, ministers, civil servants by the Treasury these are the people that ought to have some sort of special covenant to recognise 
what is needed and to implement it. And when you get down to local authorities, well, is the local health authority or the local education authority going to say, well, look, we're having our budgets cut by up to 17%. Where's the money going to come from this? And as we heard earlier, there is no extra money in this. And you can't just do it on goodwill. The goodwill, from, from my experience, the goodwill for all three services is there in the country anyway. So, Professor Strawn, if the people in charge were doing the job properly, then we wouldn't need a military covenant at all. Well, I, I absolutely agree with the point that Chris was making, that, that, that I, I delivery of the military covenant lies within the command chain. It's about a relationship between the armed forces and the government. It's about a relationship... So do you, do you believe it is the failure of the command chain that means it has to be enshrined in law? No, that, that's not the reason for putting it into law, and I, I agree with him. I'm not in, persuaded that uh, the law is the right way to go on this, although I do think if the government... Uh, produces a statement of intent as to what they will do for the armed forces and that there is then a failure to deliver, I would imagine um, that at some point or another uh, some disgruntled service personnel will take, take issues to court and thus law will be established by virtue of case law rather than by statute. And that is a good thing, Christopher, isn't it? Yes, it certainly is. Uh, 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 yes, it is a good thing. The other thing that bothers me about it, though, and they say, right, we've now got the Armed Forces Bill, which we've got, we have Armed Forces Bills anyway, but I think this is very good. It's going to be a review of it every year. But hang on a second. Do you honestly believe that uh, when it's debated every year, that's going to make much difference? I mean, you go to the defence debates in the House of Lords, you're lo lucky to be quarried. The House of Commons Defence Committee, for example, looks at this sort of thing every year and still nothing has been done certainly not in 10 years to make what uh, Professor Straw is suggesting come true. Christopher Lee, thanks stay with us and Professor Hugh Strawn, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you Sit Rep with Kate Chabot Still to come, the latest on the WikiLeaks row as the website's founder sits in a prison cell and how climate change could trigger an international conflict It's now almost a tradition for the Prime Minister to pay a pre-Christmas visit to troops in Afghanistan. This week, David Cameron kept up that tradition, travelling to Camp Bastion. The Prime Minister also met Afghanistan's President Hamid Karzai and the commander of NATO forces in the country, General David Petraeus. David Cameron played down the impact of the WikiLeaks revelations and said British troops could start to withdraw from Afghanistan next year. Our reporter at Camp Bastion, Will Inglis, spoke to the Prime Minister and he's on the line now. Hi, Kate. Yes, um, this surprise visit took the Prime Minister further forward than most VIP visitors, all the way to a dusty patrol base in the Nari Siraj area of central Helmand. He did come here to Camp Bastion for early morning talks with the governor of Helmand, Gulab Mangal, before eventually heading up to Kabul. Now, while he was here, I asked the Prime Minister whether he was worried the WikiLeaks revelations could have done permanent damage to the UK's relations with Afghanistan. I don't think so. I think everybody knows that British forces in Helmand have done a magnificent job for many, many years now, and I can see that on the ground, you know, the training of the Afghan National Army ahead of schedule, training of Afghan police now going well, protecting more of the public, and also great episodes of incredible bravery um, right up and down the Helmand River Valley. Um, in terms of the time to withdrawal, 2015, um, the Strategic Defence and Security Review, the outcome of that is structured towards reducing the size of the British forces as that date approaches. What happens if the Afghans aren't ready? We will struggle to maintain this force. Well, first of all, I wouldn't connect the two too much because, of course, 
everything we do in Afghanistan is funded out of the Treasury Reserve, so it does not impact uh, other defence spending. In terms of transition, though, you know, not just NATO, but every single country with soldiers here, almost 50 countries, plus the Afghan government, have all signed up to this process of transition between now and uh, 2014. That's going to happen. What I've seen today gives me confidence that that can happen. You know, even here in Helmand, a tough place, uh, actually there are more markets open, more schools open, more of the public protected, and also the Taliban, I think, taking a huge beating from uh, very successful British and American forces. Here we are in the festive season. One family has just had the worst possible news just a couple of weeks before Christmas. What message would you have to them and indeed the other forces families whose loved ones may be many thousands of miles away this Christmas? Well, I think to those who've lost loved ones, they should be in our thoughts and prayers this Christmas. They paid the heaviest of prices. They made a huge sacrifice and I feel very much responsible as Prime Minister. I'm the one sending troops here, putting them in harm's way. We have to be asking ourselves all the time, is what we're doing here right? Is it securing a more peaceful and stable world? And I believe it is. We're going to be here just as long as it takes to get the Afghan National Army and Police Force capable of protecting their own security in their own country. And we've set a timetable for that. We've set a deadline for that. So there's pressure on that Afghan government and on everyone here to deliver. And I believe that they will. And we have to make sure that we do everything to help the families of those that that have suffered. Well, when David Richards went to Afghanistan, he said the first British troop withdrawals would be in 2012. Now David Cameron's suggesting they could be a year earlier. Who's going to have the final say on this? Well, there's a question. The Ministry of Defence at odds with Downing Street. Who'd have thunk? Now, the Prime Minister in that interview was adamant the SDSR isn't connected to the drawdown timetable for Afghanistan. But how can it not be? I mean, come 2015, the British Armed Forces will be some 10% smaller than they are now, with 17,000 fewer servicemen and women. Now, that reduction isn't going to happen overnight. It's going to be a gradual process over the intervening months and years. That means it's going to get harder and harder to generate the current force level here of 10,000 or so. And as we know, it's not exactly easy to generate that force now, even before those cuts. Mm, and briefly, Will, the Prime Minister and Hamid Karzai both said the WikiLeaks revelations wouldn't harm the relationship between Britain and Afghanistan. How credible is that when Hamid Karzai is quoted as saying Britain wasn't up to the job in Helmand? Well, the bigger issue, I would say, is the difficulty caused by the American attitude to President Karzai, as revealed by WikiLeaks. If Karzai were to lose interest in the international project here, it could make life pretty difficult for ISAF, both obviously in practical terms, but crucially in how the foreign forces are viewed by the populace. And as we've heard um, ad infinitum almost, the campaign here, one way or another, is all about winning over that sceptical Afghan public. All right, Will English in Afghanistan, thanks very much. Uh, Christopher, thinking about the withdrawal timetable, David uh, Richards has said Afghanistan has to be good enough uh, for Britain to leave. What does that mean exactly? Probably the same thing it meant in in Iraq, wasn't it, when we wanted to get out as soon as possible. If you can actually turn around and say, OK, we think there are enough soldiers in the Afghan army that is perfectly uh, uh, trainable, if we can hand over some of the provinces to the Afghans, or we think we can, then we can go which is, in fact, what the government actually wants to do. We, so, we just want to get out. Do you put numbers and figures there, numbers of provinces, numbers of troops, or, or is it just a feeling on how long it's going to last? No, you get you the go? practical side of it. I mean, it was interesting, for example, that, uh, that the Prime Minister went to see the, uh, the governor of Helmand. He is the most successful of all the provincial governors. But you've got to remember, this, what are you handing over to? In, in Iraq, we handed over to the militia not to the Iraq army, and then we hand it over to the Americans. In Afghanistan, what we will be doing is handing over effectively to the warlords. If the warlords and some of the the governors like the one in Helmand can pull it off, then fine, we're out of there. 
All right, Christopher, thanks for now. The steady release of the latest WikiLeaks revelations has continued despite the condemnation of political leaders around the world. Every day sheds a little more light on the true feelings of US diplomats and others. This week we've seen the publication of a list of sensitive sites viewed by the US as vital to its national security. Some were in the UK. And WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is in custody, arrested in London on suspicion of sexual assault, allegations he denies. Christopher Lee is still with me and we're joined by our reporter James Hurst, who's been following every twist of the WikiLeaks story. It's been, uh, it's been fascinating, hasn't it, James? So let's start with Julian Assange. What's going to happen to him exactly? Well, he's currently in custody until December the 14th. That's when uh, uh, there is due to be another hearing where he's hoping he might get bail. I think in realistic terms... He is out of play for a long time. This is going to be a long legal battle, which then raises the more interesting question of what is going to happen to WikiLeaks. Now, if you'd asked me that a couple of a couple of weeks ago, I would have said with Julian Assange out of play, their, their future was looking shaky because while it's not a one-man organisation, he's absolutely the central pillar and a controversial figure even from within the organisation sometimes. But you have seen this huge swell of public support from around the world. And I think... WikiLeaks at the moment is looking like some, an organisation that can continue almost stronger in, in this legal battle. Mm, it's interesting how the... I mean, they've always said it's in the public interest, but it's interesting how some members of the public have really really got on board, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're seeing uh, today the even greater... Um, Internet attacks, distributed denial of service against people who are seen to have become enemies of, of WikiLeaks. And, and, and that is just support garnered around the world online. Mm. Uh, Christopher, on some of the things that have been released this week, uh, the Foreign Secretary has said the list of sensitive sites could be used by terrorists. What sites are we talking about exactly? And they weren't exactly secret anyway, were they? No, they weren't secret. Like, like a lot of things which used to be called during the Cold War KP's key points, they have to be protected. Um, there could be anything from a communication coming in on the transatlantic cable. It could be, used to be, in fact it still is, I think, for example, post office tower in London. Did you know it was classified, its whereabouts? I have no idea. No, it doesn't matter if you've got a tom-tom or one of those uh, things are called GPS. It won't tell you it's there. won't tell you it's there. No, but, <laughs> uh, but, but things that people haven't thought about. For example, in this country, there are somewhere in the region of two and a half million um, uh, diabetics. They need insulin. Mm. A key site to hit is the pharmaceutical place that manufactures insulin. You imagine a diabetic can't go more than sort of 24 hours without insulin. Mm -hmm. That starts to disrupt uh, the country and causes panic. And after all, the whole point of terrorism is to cause panic. But but couldn't they have worked this out for themselves beforehand? Um, Not necessarily, no. That is the most remarkable thing. If you look at... um, They've done the homework for them, basically. No, but Mm -hmm. I've looked at about sort of 700 of these cables... And it's interesting, the numbers of things where you can talk to people who are in that business, who have talked to people in the special branch, who are in MI5, for example, and said, I wish they hadn't mentioned that. Mm. And it's, it's the assumption that they know what they're talking about, and they're actually saying, "These." you get some guy from Leytonstone who will say, listen, I right. want to be a hero, and I'm actually going to go for that site after all. Nobody's actually told me to do it before. 
James, thank you. Christopher, stay with us. We shall move on because days after WikiLeaks revealed criticism of Russia as a virtual mafia state, came the news that a Russian woman working as an aide to a Liberal Democrat MP has been arrested on suspicion of espionage. Katya Zatuleveta faces deportation, though she denies the allegations and plans to appeal. She was arrested after claims she'd targeted Mike Hancock, a member of the Commons Defence Select Committee, whose constituency includes a huge huge naval base. Mr Hancock says his assistant is no spy. She had access to papers, but none of them were in any way not public documents in the sense of they, they were available at some time somewhere. So I don't see what anyone would have benefited from that. And I have no reason to believe she did anything but act honourably. She assures me that as of yet, she's yet to see any evidence that's been presented against her, and she is determined to appeal. Well, whatever happens to Ms. Satulivavita, intelligence sources say Russian espionage in the UK is at levels last seen at the height of the Cold War in the mid-80s. On the line is Alexander Nekrasov, who is a former advisor to the Kremlin. Thanks for your time, Alexander. How widespread is Russian spying in Britain? Well, that's a question that I would probably pose to the spy masters in Moscow, you know, to get a clear answer. The usual figure of, uh, of, of the number of spies in Britain that the press here mentions is 30, 35 people. Now, most of these people are actually working in the embassy or in the military attache's office. Uh, so um, that's no big deal. The big question is how many of these spies are working undercover as civilians out there? That's the big question, and I think that uh, uh, the British intelligence would love to know the answer to that, and uh, that's a difficult one, actually. And you have no idea, given that you were Yeltsin's policy department worker? Well, I tell you something. We did read some of the stuff coming from the, uh, you know, um, uh, intelligence sources outside the, con- uh, outside the country, but you don't really know who they are. You don't really know where it comes from. What we did know at the time, and when, well, I mean, it's, it's not a secret at the, uh, even now, is that um, basically every country is spying against everybody else. I mean, you, you, you probably... So it's business as usual, is it? Well, it is. And I, mean, you, you, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the French, I, I think there was even a scandal recently, the French are spying against the British and, and the Germans are looking after the French and so on and so on. So, so it's, it's, not, it's not something that's gone away with the Cold War or any war. It will be on all the time. It, I think it's the methods, the methods that uh, the intelligence services use. That is something that uh, people would object to. For example, you, if, you, if you remember the Litvinenko case, uh, when he was poisoned by pol- polonium. polonium. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that, that obviously caused an absolutely international crisis because something, they you know, some, somebody in the spying business just went over the top. Mm. And, uh, but if it's quietly done, I don't really think... So you're saying if the, if the spying rules are played, it's all OK and, and everyone kind of accepts that's the status quo then? Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, in the history of spying, Russia has been bending the rules a bit. You know, if you remember all those uh, you know, assassinations and things like that. So that is why I think Russia is still suspected of this brutal, ruthless spying, mm. rather than the quiet sort of information what, gathering. What, what, what are the Russians after? What kind of information do they want? Well, on the face of it, I think, I mean, you know, the perception is now that uh, the spying game is all about industrial espionage. I think it's the wrong perception. I think military secrets are still at the top of the shopping list of any spy. 
mm-hmm. because <clears throat> that means saving billions and billions of whatever in uh, research and development. And Russia, for example, with its tiny military budget compared to America, America's a trillion dollars roughly, and Russia's about 150 billion, uh, Russia desperately, desperately needs uh, new technologies for its defense programs. So I suspect that's the number one mm. uh, target for the spies. Christopher, um, Katya Zatulehteva uh, says that she's innocent. Is it possible she's going to be deported? She's not going to be tried in this country, presumably, if she is deported. Um, is it possible that she's just being made an example of and there's a wider message going out here? Well, yeah. I mean, it, also it's true that the, uh, the security services were actually looking at other people connected with her. And then she was on the periphery and she suddenly came up on the screen with a, with a connection. So there's a much bigger fish sitting out there somewhere. But I'll tell you something, a couple of weeks ago I was down at uh, Portsmouth watching the new Type uh, 45 destroyer going mm. out. In Mike Hancock's uh, stitch constituency. In Mike Hancock's mm. constituency. And there was a couple of guys standing by, uh, uh, by Blockhouse, you know, as it go, you go through the roads there going out, to the, out into the Solent. And they were photographing it. Mm. And I thought, that's very odd. Uh, it wasn't the fact they were photographing the ship. It was the way the camera was sort of tilted upwards. And it suddenly dawned on me what they were photographing were the aerials. Mm. I wouldn't mind betting, um, uh, betting Alexander there. Probably not uh, civilian, but maybe GRU people. <laughs> uh, what do you reckon? Alexander? Yes, well, I, I mean, you know, GRU people are present in every country as military, you know, attache office, uh, representatives. All right. And obviously that's their job. I, I mean, otherwise they'll be, you know, the bosses will be asking, what the hell are you doing there? I guess we'll just have to speculate on that one. Thank you, Alexander Nekrasov. Thank you. Thanks for your time today. Christopher, stay with us. This is SITREP on BFBS. The latest climate change summit ends tomorrow, but it's unlikely the two weeks discussion in Cancun will achieve very much. Unlike last year's Copenhagen summit, world leaders have stayed away this time, no one wanting to be associated with another failure. Some big questions remain unanswered on how to deal with global warming and its likely consequences. Temperature changes could see vast population movements, water and food shortages, and that could trigger conflicts between the worst and least affected countries. Countries. Joining me is Professor Paul Rogers from the Department for Peace Studies at Bradford University. Professor Rogers, thanks for your time. How could climate change create conflict? Well, let's give an example. The Hadley Centre now says that if the world warms up by 2 degrees centigrade, sub-Saharan Africa will warm up by about 3.5 degrees centigrade. And that could happen as early as um, 2030, 2035. You know, it's within the foreseeable future. Now, if you have that sort of warming up, you will get massive, really massive effects on agriculture, the ability of countries to actually grow their own food to feed their own people. The implications of that in terms of huge pressures on migration, levels that are far higher than anything we've seen, uh, are really there. And that, of course, could lead to huge amounts of suffering, but also social and political instability. That's probably the biggest single issue, that the tropics and the subtropics look like they're going to warm up faster than almost all the rest of the world, and they'll start to dry out. 
and those are the parts of the world where the majority of the people live and where so many of them grow their own food. That's the, the root problem. It's this asymmetry of impact. An average rise is actually translated as a far bigger rise uh, in, in the tropical and subtropical areas. Uh, Christopher, the Chief of the Defence Staff, is particularly worried about this, isn't the potential for climate change to cause conflict? That's right, because there is no way that you can stop it at the moment. I mean, what's going on at Cancun is so important, and yet so little may come out of it. And unless, as Paul says, unless you can imagine the consequences of mass movement of people. And I think, Paul, one of the things we're talking about, you get a mass movement of people, you also get radicalization within those people, which is exactly the subject which the Chief of the Defence Staff talks about when he talks about terrorism. Absolutely. I mean, if people are pushed to the margins and really can't escape poverty and possibly starvation, many of them will become very radical, they become absolutely desperate. Um, the problem is that if you see it from a defence point of view, does a country like Britain or indeed do NATO, do we close the castle gates? But you can't do that, we're in a completely globalised world. And some people are now actually starting to argue that the military should be arguing with governments that they've got to be far more active in moving to low carbon economies, because this actually is long term conflict prevention. Do you think David Richards will be doing that, Christopher, behind the scenes? Uh, he, he's got enough to do. I mean, I mean, seriously, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a serious answer. I mean, he's trying to put together what he's got to uh, do at the moment. But he does go to the meetings mm. on, on asymmetrical warfare, as it's called now. Mm. Um, and those asymmetrical warfare uh, papers that I've seen delivered on the desks, they are, there was one of, in fact, there was one of uh, Professor Rogers' papers uh, delivered on the desk. Read this, said the note, and tell me what you think. So they are thinking about it. Professor Rogers, it's, it's very briefly, it's a very bleak picture we're looking at, isn't it? It's a very big, bleak picture. It could mean an incredibly dangerous world in 20, 30 years' time, but, and it's a huge but, that is just about time to act. This is why Cancun is a disaster, because we're not getting the action. It's got to come in the next year or two, but if we take the action, then we can prevent this. Otherwise, it is very bleak. All right, Professor Paul Rogers, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, just before we go, um, tell us a little bit about what else has been going on this week. Uh, the Iraq inquiry has come up with some revelations, hasn't it? Yeah, the Iraq inquiry is going to resume I think on January the 18th, uh, Tony Blair is going to be called back to give evidence. But most importantly, there's a man called Brian Jones in the Defence Ministry who was not heard, nor was his evidence. He was actually sort of throttled. Don't say what you're going to say. It was he who told uh, John Scarlett, who was then running the Intelligence uh, Committee, this 45-minute strike from Iraq is absolute nonsense. The next morning, who goes into the House of Commons? Prime Minister goes in the House of Commons and says, oh, 45 minutes, we could all be attacked, etc. At last, Brian Jones is going to be asked to give written evidence why this, couldn't, uh, why, this, why this was so. Incidentally, going back to what Paul was saying, you've got to do it now. On Tuesday next week, the Chief of the Defence Staff will be talking to us at the Royal United Services Institute. Yeah. One of the things he'll be talking about is the importance of climate change as a, uh, as a defence issue in the next three or four years. Spot on, because he's read Paul Rogers' paper. <laughs> Good stuff. What, what stuff have we got, got coming up in the next week? Uh, on Wednesday, mm. the uh, Secretary of State is going to appear before the House of Commons Defence Committee. Mm. And I think that's rather important, because he's going to be talking strictly on Afghanistan. I know there's questions you were asking Will earlier about mm. the reaction about Karzai's uh, attitude towards the British and also the American attitude. That will that will and come general, up. And General Petraeus has still not reported back yet, has he? No, to? General Petraeus has, well, he's, he's given a verbal report, but he's got to give a full report back to uh, President Obama, which you'll probably do either by the end of next week or the following Monday. Uh, that's worth watching about because it concerns us, doesn't it? When are we coming home? 
when they can actually convince people it's all right, we can go now. (laughs) Christopher, we can go now. Thank you very much for your time this week. Uh, My thanks to you. And if you missed any of today's programme, you can listen again online at bfbs.com slash sitrep, where you can also sign up for the weekly podcast so you need never miss the programme again. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back at the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.